so thankful you've chosen to tune in on whatever platform you're using, whether Podbean or through Facebook or iTunes. Whatever way you're listening, I just want to say thank you for joining in. We'd love to hear from you, so drop a comment to us or email us at thegrove267 at gmail.com. If you want to know more about us as a ministry, go to hisgrove.com, or you can also check us out on Facebook at Deeply Rooted Ministries in Canton, Texas. We believe God wants to use these messages to spread His truth to a needy world, but primarily a needy church, which needs the truth of the Word to resurrect among us so that Heaven's army will be equipped to win souls and train them up in the Lord. Jesus said if we know the truth, it will set us free. So help us to bring freedom to people's lives by sharing these messages in any way you can. Now to our podcast. Well, listeners, how is it going in your life? I hope that you guys are well, and more so that you are well, that you are well with the Lord, that your relationship with Him is thriving, and that uh, He is doing miraculous things in your life, um, giving you revelations, giving you insights through His Word, giving you opportunities to speak His Word and His truth, uh, and just altogether being ambassadors for His name. I pray that that is your aim, your mission, and your heart's desire um, as we live out this temporary life that we have on this earth until we dwell with him for all of eternity. Praise God. We are going to um, go through the book of Jude and finish up this three-part series today. I am trying. We are supposed to be having some storms come through here that are um, you know, supposed to be pretty bad. And um, so I'm trying to get this done before they come through. But I had some time today. I'm not working on the building. Um, for those of you who might be new um, to listening to me, you know, I'm, there's just been a lot going on the last last couple months. Man, there's been a lot going on the last couple years. Um, but I've been trying to get time to do to finish up this series through Jude. And I've gotten the first part done. I got the second part done. It took me about six to seven weeks, I believe, to get that done. And I'm hoping to finish that up today. But if you're a first-time listener, I kind of want you to understand a little bit what you're getting from me. Those who are coming back to finish up this series, or if you've been with us for a while, welcome back. Um, I am not one who's going to give you fluff. I'm not one who's going to speak cliches and just give you things that you've probably always have heard before. I want to take the text for what it says, break it down for us uh, as we go through it. And I'm going to speak some hard truths. I'm going to speak some things that probably you might not have ever even heard before, and you might not have even entertained before. Even in the church that we're going to, I've had meetings with some of the guys, some of the, the leadership that's there, some of the gentlemen that I am associated with. I've had meetings before, and I've brought things to light from the scriptures that they're like, I've never thought of that. But that makes um, complete sense with what the scriptures are stating. Um, there are a lot of things. I was just talking about with my kids today as we're going through Romans. We were hitting chapter 2. There's a lot of cliche things and a lot of traditions that people have been taught. And as I was correlating it with them, with Paul and Peter, about how Paul rebuked Peter in front of everybody as an elder to an elder, um, Paul rebukes him in front of everybody because it says Peter stood condemned. Why did he stand condemned? Because he was choosing to walk in the flesh by showing partiality between the Jews and the Gentiles. Both Christians, the Jewish Christians, Gentile Christians, and he showed partiality, which as James tells us is sin, as James 2 goes on to say. And so Paul rebukes him. And I was asking them, I said, you, you see the same correlation in Romans chapter 2 in which I'm sure that Paul is just tired of dealing with the same traditionalism within the church, every place that he goes. You see it in Galatians, you see it in Romans, you see it in the Corinthians, you see it you know, throughout most all of his books, if not every one of his books, of the partiality that the Jews thought that they were still better than the Gentiles. That the Jews somehow were like um, children A, and the Gentiles were like children B in God's household. Instead of realizing in Ephesians 2, it says that there is no distinction. That there is no Jew nor Greek. We are the family of God because we've come through the blood of Christ. We are his heritage. We are his people. The Jews are no longer his people. We as the church are. And so therefore we have equality among us. And I'm sure Paul was tired of dealing with the traditionalism in the church. And always having to call it out. And I'm sure when he dealt with it with Peter, it was the same thing. 
And my point in saying all that is, is that I'm tired of hearing a lot of the traditionalism in the church today. People are brought up to believe something because it's always been the common belief. And they've never questioned it. They've never studied the scriptures to find otherwise. So they just cling to it. Much like the Jews did with always being the, the, um, the ones who felt entitled. The ones who felt like they were the ones who were the better ones over the Gentiles. And it filtered even into the church. And Paul got tired of it. And I'm tired of it. And so when you come to my podcast channel, you're going to find a lot of things that are not traditionalist. You're going to find a lot of things in which I'm going to bring up stuff, and today is going to be no exception. We're going to cover the last third part of Jude, and there's going to be things I'm probably going to say that you're going to be like, wait a second, I've never heard that before, I've never thought of that, I'm not even so, so sure that I agree with that. And I'm okay with that. All I want is to plant a seed of truth in your mind and see what God does with it in your mind as you allow it to grow and not your personal opinion to choke it out. So with that said, um, I'm different. I get that. Um, I'm going to be blunt. I'm going to be straight to the point. And if that's the kind of teaching you like, then you're probably going to love this channel. Let's get into this. Uh, it's already actually starting to get pretty dark outside. Um, all right, so verse 14. I encourage you, if you haven't um, listened to the first and second part of this, I would really encourage you to go back and listen to that, even stop this one, uh, go back and listen to those first, and then come into this, because there's a lot that I've hit on those first 13 verses that I think will be um, key in understanding some of what we're going to talk about. But nonetheless, let's keep going. It says, It was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, so here's the quote-unquote, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones to execute judgment on all and to convict all the ungodly of all their deeds of ungodliness that they have committed in such an ungodly way and of all the harsh things that ungodly sinners have spoken against him. Okay, so there's a lot to unpack. Some of it I'm not going to be able to, honestly, because it's been a long time since I've studied the concept of the book of Enoch or the book of Jasher or even the Apocrypha. Here's what I'll say about that. You could go back into Protestantism, you could find out why the Apocrypha was um, no longer included in the Bible, but in the Catholic Bible you have the Apocrypha, you even have the complete Apocryphal edition in which you would have the book of Jasher, the book of Enoch, some of these extracurricular ones, if you will. Um, and here's what I have to say about that. I have no problem with people reading the Apocrypha. I have no problem with people going in because essentially what it is, much of it is just the missing historical years of Israel from about 400 BC until the coming of Christ. That's a lot of what it is. I'm no part of people who are no problem with people who are going to go read that historically to find out some of these things. What I will say is that there's a reason that it has not been listed as canonical. It has not been included in scripture for a reason. I have no problem with people reading that just like I have no problem with people reading the editions of men of books that they've written. I mean, I wrote a book and I'd love for people to, to read that book. But to take my book as scripture... That I would have a problem with. In the same way, the Apocrypha, to take it as scripture, I would, I would highly argue against that. I'm not going to get into it too much, but what I will say is that there's a lot to be left to be studied on that. And the book of Enoch is apparently where this statement is coming from, that Jude is actually referencing as being something of value. No different than when Paul says it. Even some of the Cretans, one of their own poets, says something, and he quotes a... a secular poet. That doesn't mean the secular poet's word is God's word. It just simply means it had value to it. And in the same way, Enoch is prophesying something. But it's less to do about Enoch and it's more to do with, the, with um, what Enoch is talking about. And here's essentially what it is. God's judgment will come upon every individual on the face of the earth. That's what he's stating. The glory of God will be revealed as, as, as Jesus comes with, and we're going to read that in a second, Jesus comes with all of his holy ones, and he will inflict judgment. He will inflict God's judgment. He will bear the sword, he will bear the rod, and he will come and inflict vengeance, and there is no one on this earth who will be able to escape it. I was having this conversation with the kids today about in Romans chapter 2 as we were going over it. Apparently, Paul was addressing within that, as you study the context of it, that there were some Jewish Christians who believed that they were relying upon the patience and mercy and kindness of God and somehow thought that they were above God's judgment, that they would not become judged. 
And Paul's reminding them to say, um, that's not true. You could fast forward to Romans 14, 12, which says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. You could go into 2 Corinthians 5, 10, that says that we will all stand before the judgment seat of Christ, each of us to receive what we have done in the body, whether good or evil, Paul including himself in that. You can look at Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 31, where the author of Hebrews says, if we go on sinning deliberately after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a fearful expectation of judgment. The, the concept is littered all throughout Scripture, and I know that there's this popular belief that whenever I became a Christian, that all my past, present, future sins were wiped away, but I'm here to tell you that's just not what Scripture teaches. We will give an account. I mean, even taking the Lord's Supper in an unworthy manner. Let me ask you this question in 1 Corinthians 11 when he talks about this concept of taking communion in an unworthy manner without discerning the body. It says that's why some of you are sick and have even died. Let me ask you, how in the world could you be judged for taking communion in an unworthy manner if all your past, present, future sins were wiped away at the cross when you first came into this relationship with God through Jesus Christ? How can you give an account for something that was forgiven at the cross? How could you be held accountable to it? How could you be judged to such a level where you might be sick and have even died because as a Christian you took part of communion in an unworthy manner? You see, this doesn't fit. It doesn't make sense in the fullness of Scripture. But because of traditionalism, that's what people have always been taught and these cliche statements have made people wander into myths and false teachings. Here's the reality. As 2 Corinthians 3.14 talks about, since we're waiting for these beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from every defilement of body. I'm sorry, I just confused that totally with 2 Corinthians 7.1. Let me actually get to 2 Peter chapter 3 so I can read that to you for what it says. I think I started it off correctly. Um, in 14, therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, yeah, that's, that's the part that I had right. It says, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish. Now, what is a spot or blemish, you might ask? Well, that would be sin. But if I was already cleansed from all that, then how am I supposed to do my part in making sure that I'm found by him on that last day without spot or blemish? You see how it doesn't fit? It doesn't make sense in the totality of Scripture. In the same way, in Philippians 1, 9-10, through 10, he says this, And it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment, so that you may approve what is excellent, and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ. Whose job is it to approve what is excellent with all discernment and knowledge, so that I can be pure and blameless, without reproach, without a mark against me? It's my job. And if I don't do that, then I would have a mark against me. This is why John, 65 years after his conversion, roughly, in about 95 AD, writes the letter of 1 John, and in verse 9 he says, If we, including himself, confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us of our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. That means that I could have an unrighteous mark against me, that I would have dirt and grime on me, because I have sinned. And God says, I will judge you for it, because you will give an account for what you've done in the body, whether good or evil. And this is what Jude is referencing here, the book of Enoch. Is that God's judgment will come upon the sons of disobedience. And as Ephesians 5 says, therefore, Christians, do not become partners with them. And so it's, I would encourage you, go study the concept of the book of Enoch. I'm sure there's some really good things in there. I'm sure there's some things that you'd be like, man, that's really good. But don't get lost in some of this other extra stuff that's on the peripheral. Take note of what Enoch is stating and what Jude is referencing from that. And saying, look guys, God's judgment is going to come. And it's going to come and he will, put, he will bring about judgment on all mankind for all the ungodliness that is done. Whether you are a Gentile or a Jew, or whether you're a Christian or not a Christian, there will be judgment to various degrees and various levels. Now, I want to get into something later on in verse 21 that I think I want, I want you to really stay with me on this and pay close attention because this concept of the judgment of sin 
gets abused in so many different ways. On one extreme, you have the people who say that we won't give an account for our sin because it's already been wiped away. When God looks at me, he sees the blood of Jesus. Let me just tell you, that's not true. God sees your sin. But then on the other hand, you have these ones who say, when you sin, you've lost your salvation until you repent and then you get it back. And you just hope and pray that on that last day, you just don't have any sin. Because if you have sin, then you don't have salvation. And that's simply not true either. Neither one of those hold water to the litmus test of Scripture when it's studied in its fullness. So we're going to get into that. I want you to stay with me because I'm going to hopefully, through the Spirit and the grace of God, unlock and unveil the truth of the hope that we have in Christ, but the, the holiness of who God is and what He demands of us. Okay? So we're going to go on. In verse 16 it says, These are grumblers, malcontents, following their own sinful desires. They are loud-mouthed boasters showing favoritism to gain advantage. Now this is just concepts of the flesh. I mean, just straight and narrow, just very simple concepts of the flesh. Grumblers, did you know grumbling is of the flesh? And it's actually sin. The next time that you grumble, I want you to understand, God saw it. It's not okay. He actually lists the concept of grumbling up there with sexual morality, lying, murder. He lists grumbling all up there. In fact, he even talks about, uh, and the reference is actually escaping me at the moment, but he says, do all things without grumbling or complaining that you may be children of God without blemish in the midst of a crooked and twisted generation. Do all things without grumbling or complaining. That is sin. If you are grumbling and complaining, it's not okay. God's grace does not cover that. His mercy could cover that when you repent, but his grace is something that is designed to empower you to not do it. And did you catch what he said? Be, do all things, all, without grumbling or complaining, that you may be children of God without blemish. That means you can have a mark against you. He goes on and he says this, but you. So now he's showing a distinction between who he was talking about and now who he's directing his, um, the points that he's wanting to make to. Now he's directing it to the beloved. He's no longer talking about what he was through 5 through 13 in referencing them, the malcontents, the grumblers, the ones who are twice dead, the ones who um, are shepherds feeding themselves, who are there eating with you at your love feast, but they have no fear of God, the people who are uprooted, the wild waves of the sea, um, their hidden reefs. They, they, uh, he's not talking about them anymore. He was warning the church about them and detailing who they are, what they are. And now he's referencing specifically the church because he's calling them the beloved as well as he says, you. You remember who he's talking to? You go back to the very beginning. To those who are called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. Verse 3, beloved. Although I was very eager to... Um, to write to you about our common salvation. So we know that the people he's writing to, when he references you, are people who have a common salvation with the author, as well as they are called beloved, and they are called, um, yeah, called beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ. So now he's no longer talking about the former group of people that he was detailing and warning the church about that they need to contend against and purge from among them. Now he's writing specifically and addressing them. And he says, but you must remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ. They said to you, in the last time there will be scoffers, which is a Greek word that simply just means a false teacher or mockers. And it makes me think of Galatians 6 and verse 7 when he says, do not be deceived, God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that he will reap. You sow to the flesh, you reap corruption. You sow to the spirit, catch what you reap. Eternal life. Which begs another question. And I know I can go on some bunny trails, but all the bunny trails will always lead back to the source of truth, I guarantee you. I might take some tunnels here and there, but it's always going to come back to the den of truth. If sowing to the spirit means you have to walk by the spirit, if that is what reaps eternal life. 
then what happened at your salvation? Because the common belief is, is that when I got saved, I have the promise of eternal life. And once saved, I'm always saved. I'll always have eternal life no matter what. But Paul says in Galatians 6, I don't want you to be deceived. God's not mocked. If you're going to think that you um, can come into Christ and still live by the flesh, which is possible for a Christian, go read 1 Corinthians chapter 3, 1-3, where it literally says they're infants in Christ because they're of the flesh. They're in Christ, but they're still living according to the flesh. If I have to actually sow to the Spirit and walk by the Spirit in order to reap eternal life, that begs the question of, is it always once saved, always saved? Or do I actually have to do something to maintain the salvation? And again, these are probably some of those things that you've never heard before. I would encourage you to stay with me because I'm going to bring up some questions here in a little bit that I hope are going to make you wonder and question Things that you've always been told. And he goes on, he says, and Paul includes himself, and we will reap. What did he just talk about reaping? Eternal life. And we will reap if we do not give up. Isn't that a fascinating thing? And the very beginning of that in verse 7, Paul says, I don't want you to be deceived because there's going to be people who are teaching things contrary to this. But I'm going to tell you, you have to not give up in order to reap eternal life. And we'll talk about that in a little bit of what that giving up is. And he goes on, he says this. In the last time there will be scoffers, mockers, false teachers, people who are ridiculing the truth of God and the word of God and maybe even the existence of God. He says, following their own ungodly passions. He says, you've been warned by the apostles that this is going to take place. That there will be people who are going to be following their own desires, their own inhibitions, their own passions. A way that seems right to a man, but its end is going to end in death. There's Proverbs 16, I think it's 25 that says. He says, you've got to remember, this is how it's going to be. Paul says the same thing in his letters. 2 Timothy chapter 3, in the last days it's going to get hard. Why? Because people will be lovers of self. The world has always been lovers of self. Paul says in the last days it's going to get difficult because in the church, people are going to be be lovers of self. What was the context of what Jude's referencing here? It's these people are eating with you at your love feasts. They're shepherds who are feeding themselves. They're people who are going to be among you and even within you. And you got to watch out. Because these people are only showing favoritism to gain an advantage from you. He says this, it is these who cause divisions. Worldly people devoid of the Spirit. He says these people are creeping in among you and they're worldly people that their minds set on the things of the world, not on the things of heaven. Remember what he says in 1 John chapter 2, um, I think it's 15 through 17. Let me go back and, and read it so I don't misquote it. He says, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Let me ask you, what are some of these things that are of the world? I mean, there's some things probably going through your mind right now of what might be worldly. And you might even be thinking of like sinful things. I'm not even just talking about sinful things. I'm talking about maybe even good things. What about a love for your nation that rivals your love for the kingdom of heaven? And you might be thinking, oh no, no, that's not me. Let me just tell you, I see it every day. I see people who hoop and holler and amen for things of America, but are silent when it comes to the things of the church. People who make sure that they stand for the flag, but they will not stand for truth and the word of God and for the name of Jesus Christ. I see people who are more passionate for their country than they are for their Jesus. I see people who honor an American soldier for going off and fighting and leaving his family and sacrificing and doing all this stuff. And we call him a hero. But if somebody has to do that for their family in the church, we call them an infidel. Because we don't even understand what 1 Timothy 5.8 is actually even saying. You see, I see the idolatry of patriotism every day. And that's a love for this world. That's just an example. You could go on to many different things. But he goes on and he says this. 
For all that is in the world, the desires of the flesh, the desires of the eyes, and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. And the world is passing away along with its desires, but whoever does the will of God abides forever. You want to know how you can distinguish if something is of the world or not? It's passing away. You love your life, your life, not the life of Christ in you, but your life, your life is passing away. You love your nation, well, I guarantee you, we're going to be having a new heaven and a new earth. This one's going to get destroyed. So if you love your nation, that's passing away. And you know what? You're part of the culprit of what's creating division in the church. Because that's exactly what he says. Worldly people, it is these who cause divisions. Paul says a similar thing in Philippians chapter 3. Let me turn to it real quick so I don't misquote it. Of how he starts. You ever have those moments where you're trying to quote a scripture. And if you can get the first couple words of it. You can remember the whole thing. But if those first few words are missing from your mind in the moment. It's like you can't remember any of it. In Philippians 3 he says in verse 17. Brothers join in imitating me. And keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. For many of whom I have often told you. And now tell you even with tears. Walk as enemies of the cross of Christ. They're not walking or seeking to walk as enemies of Christ. They're walking as enemies of the cross of Christ. They don't want to get on it because they want their flesh to still have life. And they walk as enemies. Their end is destruction. Their God is their belly. And they glory in their shame with minds set on earthly things. But our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ And just as he says in Colossians 3, he says, If then you've been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things above, not on things below. The concept is all throughout Scripture. I'm not saying you can't have a love for things that are of this world, but if that love is equal to or greater than the love that you have for Jesus, for the kingdom of heaven, for his church, and the mission that we have in accordance with the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ and the cross that he has commissioned us to carry, then you are in open idolatry and sticking your hand in God's face as a mocker. I even quoted on Facebook not too long ago in Isaiah, I think it's in 45, 29, where it says that this word has gone out from my mouth, it will not come back. To me and me alone shall you bow the knee and swear allegiance. I paraphrased it, but that's basically what it says. To swear allegiance to God is to seven yourself according to the Hebrew. That means that every part of who you are has allegiance regardless of any other allegiance that you might have. And he says, and this word ain't coming back. This will be what it is for all of eternity. So don't think that you can swear your allegiance or pledge your allegiance to a nation of this earth and say you want to pledge your allegiance to God because it doesn't go both ways. You either love the one or hate the other. You will despise the one and be devoted to the other. You cannot serve God and mammon or the things of this world. It is impossible. So don't think that you can be a soldier of this country and be a soldier of heaven doesn't work because those two things are polar opposites of what their agenda is and i know i'm getting on my soapbox right now and i've taken a bunny trail but i guarantee you it both stems from and will and will arrive at a den of truth and it's these people you might be part of it worldly people who are dividing the church From those who walk in the flesh and those who walk in the spirit. Those who seek to have a heavenly mindset from those who seek to be worldly and you're leaven. And I'm going to challenge you and exhort you, if you love Jesus, to repent. And confess it so that you can be cleansed from all unrighteousness. And not have to have a fury of fire that will consume the adversaries as Hebrews chapter 10, 26 through 28 says. Listen to what he says. He says, these people are going to be among you, so I'm going to challenge you again, church. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith. Whose job is it to build yourself up in the most holy faith? It's yours. God ain't going to do it for you. One of the worst plagues I think that the church has ever had on it is the teaching of Calvinism. 
Because it has put everything in God's court and nothing in our own. And therefore, there's going to be a lot of people who stand before God one day and He's going to go, Why didn't you work out your salvation with fear and trembling? Why didn't you build yourselves up in your most holy faith? Why didn't you put to death the deeds of the flesh? Why didn't you do this? You had a task to do this and you didn't do it. Well, well, they told me that I didn't have to because that was work-based. Building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit. I want you to pay very careful attention to what he says right here. Because this goes hand in hand with what I just said about Calvinism. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Let me, let me repeat that one just one more time. Keep yourselves in the love of God. Let's look at a few things. One, whose job is it to, put, to keep themselves in his love? It's yours and it's mine. But, but, but I thought God was always just going to keep me in his hand and everything was going to... What does Jude say? Keep yourself in the love of God. That Greek word for keep is the Greek word tereo. It means to attend carefully from loss. To guard something and to stay in the current state in which one currently is in. To remain in. It says, it's your job to preserve the condition that you are in currently. It's your job to protect it from any loss. That means that you can lose your standing with God of being in His love. And immediately I know there's somebody out there who studied the book of Romans who has heard of this cliche verse used over and over and over outside of his context and they'll say, nothing, Dwight, can separate me from the love of God. Some of you might even be saying, amen, right there. You just said it. You just, you just rebuked yourself. Well, let me just say, that verse actually goes on to say something else. And this goes and, and brings full circle to everything that I was talking about earlier, about how you have the extremes of the people who say that I've been forgiven of everything, past, present, future. God sees the blood of Jesus when he looks at me. And then the extremes of those who you say you sin one time and you're done. And somewhere in the middle is the truth. Listen to what he goes on to say in Romans chapter 8, verse 39. Great verse. For a long time, I couldn't apply this verse to my life because I saw the heresy attached to it and the abuse and misunderstanding that was attached to it. So I could not take this verse for myself. But God opened my eyes and allowed me to be able to take the beauty of this verse and attach it to myself in truth. Despite the misconceptions that people have about it. But listen to what he says. Nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Now that is a very important thing that oftentimes gets left off when quoted. Nothing can separate me from the love of God. That ain't what it says. Nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. So that begs the question. What does it look like to keep ourselves in the love of God? I mean, Jude just gave us the commission as Christians. But you, beloved, building yourselves up in your most holy faith and praying in the Holy Spirit, keep yourselves in the love of God. How do you do that? I believe you just simply follow what Romans 8.39 says. You keep yourself in. In the position of Jesus Christ. Because if nothing separates you from the love of God in Christ. Then as long as you abide in Christ. Firm until the end. Then you will never be separated from the love of God. It's that simple. Which then begs the question. If Jude is warning the church. To make sure that they keep themselves in the position of Jesus Christ. Then that means. You could exit that position. Now, I've talked about that when I did a podcast study over the book of Hebrews, and I went over Hebrews chapter 6, in which it talks very plainly about apostasy. Apostasy is essentially this. It's you abandoning the person of Jesus Christ. That's essentially you deserting the faith with once you once had. 
You could go and look at Matthew chapter 10, verse 22, that says the one who endures to the end will be saved. Hebrews chapter 10, 36 says, you have need of endurance so that after doing the will of God, you will receive what is promised. First John chapter 2, I believe is verse 21 says, and this is what he has promised, eternal life. We've already talked about Galatians 6, 7 through 10. It says that we will reap if we do not give up. And even in 1 Timothy chapter 4, 7 through 8, it literally says, if I can turn to it real quick so that I don't get away from what it literally says. 1 Timothy chapter 4, in which Paul is writing specifically to Timothy, his true child in the faith, of whom he has no one like him, who is generally concerned about the affairs of others. He says this, Have nothing to do with their reverent silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness, for while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance. And then it goes on in verse 16. Keep a close watch on yourself, speaking directly to Timothy, his true child in the faith. And on the teaching, persist in this, for by so doing, check this out, you will save both yourself and your hearers. How in the heck is it possible for Timothy to save himself? Let me just tell you what it is. It's by remaining in the person of Jesus Christ. All of God's promises are attached to him. So if you are in him, you attain his promises. If you are out of him, you do not. If your name is not in that book of life, you don't get in. And let me just tell you, I do not believe for one moment that once you are saved, you're always saved. I used to, until I began to study the text unbiasedly, without traditionalism, without any preconceived notion of what I wanted truth to be. I simply just went to God and I said, God, you show me what your word says and I will believe it. And so he did. And I believe it. Our salvation is through Christ and Christ alone. But our responsibility is to remain in him. I mean, I could go into, you know... Let me show you a passage in First Thessalonians. Well, you know what? I'm going to let that one sit. And I'm going to transition into one, one brief topic of the concept of God's love being unconditional. Because I think this verse proves otherwise. Not only do you have this verse, but you have in John 15. It says the same thing that um, keep my commandments. Because if you keep my command, commandments, you will remain in my love just as I kept my Father's commandments and remain in His love. Let me ask you, if His love is unconditional, then how is it hinged upon anything of us? You look at Jeremiah 16.5 and Psalm 25.10 and Daniel 9.4 and Nehemiah 1.5. They all say the same thing. His steadfast love is for those who keep His covenant and remember to do His testimonies. God's love for you is hinged upon your position in Jesus Christ. And you might ask the question, well, but John 3.16 says that for God so loved the world. They're not in Jesus, and you're absolutely right, because they're ignorant. They've never known. They've never been enlightened. They don't know the way of truth. They don't know the light. But once you've come into that, you become accountable to it. Once you've been enlightened by the grace of God unto the mercies and the riches of Christ, then you're accountable to it, and He expects more from you. So therefore then, if you turn from that, there will be consequence. Just as what he says in Hebrews chapter 6. And I could quote this one, but I want to make sure that I get it correctly. This is what he says. For it is impossible. You know, you know what impossible means, right? It is impossible because God's word has said it is impossible. Just as he says the reverse of that, nothing will be impossible for him who believes. The only thing that is impossible is what would violate God's word. But anything that God has commissioned us to do in Christ has become possible for those of us who are in Him if we believe. And on the flip side, if God says something is impossible in His word, it is impossible. And here's what He says is impossible. In the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, which is the Greek word metekos, it means they become a partner or an associate, or they become unified and one with the Holy Spirit. He says it is impossible in the case of those who have been enlightened, who have tasted 
the heavenly gift, have shared in the Holy Spirit, have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come. And then after all that has been true in their life, after they've become one with the Holy Spirit, they've been enlightened to the goodness of God, they've tasted the gift of heaven and they've tasted the powers of the, of the age to come. And then they have peripipto, fallen away. It means to apostatize. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance since they are crucified once again, the Son of God to their own harm and holding them up to contempt. I really hope that your eyes are watching what the Spirit is doing right here. I really hope your ears are open to what the Spirit is speaking as He says in Revelation. Because this is serious stuff. Do I believe that it's difficult to apostatize? Absolutely, because you have a loving God who is seeking to bring you to His throne every step of the way. His kindness and mercy and forgiveness. And even in things that which we as the church, we might not even be willing to forgive, God is. But there is one thing He is unwilling to forgive. And that is when you hold His Son up to contempt and seek to crucify Him once again. He will not forgive that. Just as Esau, and it talks about in Hebrews 12 and 15, it says, See that no one among you is like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal, and afterwards when he sought repentance, he found none, even though he sought it with tears. You know what that birthright is? It was the blessing of the Father among the firstborn. And Esau sold it for the thing of this world. That which was his, he sold it. And afterwards when he found, when he saw repentance, he found none. Exactly what Hebrews 6 says. So I would say keep yourself in the love of God means to keep yourself in the position of Jesus Christ. Are we going to stumble and fall? Yeah, it's possible. But the sin does not negate our salvation. Because our salvation is in Christ. But if you choose to apostatize from Him and desert this faith, then you desert your salvation and the promises that God has attached to them. I know this is weighty, but I'm simply expounding upon what Jude felt needful to write. He says, waiting for the mercy of our Lord Jesus Christ that leads to eternal life. Notice, Jude isn't saying that he currently has it. He does, but he doesn't. Because right now he has the promise of, but the manifestation of that eternal life has not come to fruition yet because he has not died yet. This is why it says in Romans 8.17, in which Paul includes himself, when it says this, and please hear me out on this, because again, this is Paul. You could even go look at 1 Corinthians 9.24-27, when he says a very similar concept, in which he says that, um, I discipline my body, I keep it under submission, I keep it under control, lest after preaching to others, I myself will be adokimos, or disqualified from running the race. Paul, no one else, he says, I, that I would be disqualified from running this race. Man, if Paul can be disqualified from running this race, why couldn't we? Again, in Romans eight seventeen, here's what Paul says. I'll start in 16. The Spirit Himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. We are fellow heirs with Christ. Being in Him, we are fellow heirs with Him. And then Paul says this, provided we suffer with him in order that we also may be glorified with him. Did you catch that? Paul says that we have to do something in order to be glorified with Christ in the end. We. Not you as if it's a proof text of your salvation. We. Paul includes himself. He says, I still have a mission. I still have something to do. I got to stay on that boat. If you don't know what I mean by that, go read in Acts 27, which Paul received a promise. I think it's 27. Paul received a promise from God that everyone in that boat was going to be spared. 
And he says, and I believe it'll be exactly as he says. But then several verses later, people started trying to jump the boat. They started to try, to try to jump the ship. And Paul says this, unless you remain in the ship, you cannot be saved. Paul got the promise that everybody was going to get saved. But he gives the condition later on that says, you must remain in the boat. And the same way, we have the promise from God that we will have eternal life in the end. That is ours to hold on to. It is ours because by faith we have come into this life. And we have that promise. But God says, but you're going to have to endure in that boat. You can't jump ship. You got to stay, even if that ship runs aground, even if things start happening, if what, if you start having to go hungry and you start tossing everything over the, the, the walls of the boat, no matter how hard it gets, do not jump ship. You must remain in the boat in order to find that promise in the end. And this is why it says the one who endures to the end will be saved. We have need of endurance so that after we have done the will of God, we will receive what is promised. I don't think it gets any more clear, guys. If you find yourself holding on to that traditional uh, teaching of once saved, always saved, or that all your past, present, future sins were wiped away, please, I am pleading with you. Let go of that heresy and turn to the truth of God's word. For what is written, not what you wanted to say or what your pastor says, but for what is written. He goes on, he says, and have mercy on those who doubt. Just as Jesus did. The man who says, I believe, Lord, help my unbelief. There was a part of him that doubted, and Jesus had mercy on him. But he says, but to others, save others by snatching them, which is the Greek word, therapazo, means to seize or pull or take by force. That's what I'm doing in this podcast. I'm not trying to gently give you some subtle little hints and some subtle little things that I want you guys to look at. Hopefully, no, I'm trying to take by force the heresies that might be planted in your mind and your heart and bring you to truth and save you from what might be an encounter with Jesus that you're not, it's going to go not as you expect it to. Because you'll have sin in your ledger. And you think that you'll be forgiven. And you'll presume upon the riches of his kindness. And you think that you're just going to go stand before him. And he's going to be like, hey man, come on in. Well done, my good and faithful servant. Even though you didn't do anything well and you weren't really all that faithful. Come on in anyways. One of the biggest wrenches in Calvinistic thought processes is what Jesus is going to say when we stand before him. Well done, my good and faithful servant. That means that you had to do something. That means you had to achieve something. And that means that you had the responsibility for him to say those words to you. It says, save others by snatching them out of the fire to others, show mercy. But check this out, with fear, even hating the, I'm sorry, yeah, hating even the garment stained by the flesh. I would encourage you to go look at Psalms 5.5 and Psalm 11.5, in which both of them say that God hates all evildoers. So another traditional cliche statement is that love the sinner, hate the sin. That's not exactly true. Because God hates the sinner too. I'll let you chew on that for a while and go do some of your own research on how all that fits together. But what I do know is it's written. Not to him who is able to keep you from stumbling. Praise God. Oh, here's my question though. Why do you even stumble? Why do you stumble at all? If he's able to keep me from stumbling, as I've heard from a a very prominent um, teacher today, if he's able to keep you from stumbling, if that means that you'll never, you'll never stumble and never fall away, then why do you stumble? Why do you and I sin? Why do we have our hard days? If he's able to keep us from stumbling, then why do we stumble? It's because you're choosing to. Grace has afforded you the opportunity to overcome sin and not stumble. That's what it means when it says he is able. He's able to keep you and I from stumbling. We don't have to give in to the lures of the flesh. We don't have to give in to the temptations of sin. 
We do because we chose in the moment to do so. Even though God gave us the authority to say no, we chose to say yes. He is able to keep us from stumbling and to present us blameless before the presence of His glory with great joy to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ, our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. God is able to keep us from stumbling, to allow us to be presented before Him, as 1 Thessalonians 5, 23-24 says, body, soul, and spirit, blameless before Him. But whether or not that actually happens is up to you and up to me. God has done His part and has afforded us the ability to say no to the flesh and to temptation. And He is able, if we rely on Him in those moments, He is able to keep us from stumbling. But if you stumble, that's on you. If you sin, that's on you. It wasn't because God failed you. It was because you failed Him. And so what is Jude all about? I believe Jude is a warning to believers. To not only should we have pure and holy doctrine. But it's a warning to watch out for those who don't. It's a warning to watch out for those who will twist the scriptures Because of their ignorance, which could simply mean they're ignoring something intentionally. Or maybe they've just never been enlightened to those things. And so my appeal to you, beloved, contend for the faith. Seek to have a pure and holy doctrine in accordance with the word of God and not in traditionalist uh, ways of thinking, preferences, opinions, or cliche statements that sound great but don't hold up to the litmus test of scripture. Take the word for what it says. Let God instruct you in your hearts and your minds through the spirit that he's given to dwell in you. And don't let it be, man. Contend for the faith. Watch out for those who seek to cause divisions according to worldliness and fleshly tendencies. And keep yourself in the love of God. Waiting on the day that he returns. Y'all be blessed.